markets evolve and we never want to go back. We don't, we don't want to go, we never want to go back to a market structure that we had in 1990 or 19 or 2005. But there were attributes of, of that market structure that were that serve small to mid-sized companies extremely well that have not been replicated in this new world that we are in today. And, and we do find that to be frustrating. And, and, and that now has um, been replaced by machines. I mean, the amount of person-to-person contact within firms and from firm to firm has changed dramatically. And you know, we still believe that, listen, it, technology is great and, and it's wonderful that we can send a newsletter to 35,000 people. That's, that's great. But don't kid yourself. There is more information and more value in a conversation than there is in an email. Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. That was Jim Toes, the president and CEO of the large grassroots Wall Street trade organization known as the Security Traders Association. It's for professional traders and other professionals in financial services. And he's my guest coming up. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, Life on Planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Our guest, Jim Toes, President and CEO of the Security Traders Association, based in New York, will dig a bit deeper on the implications of the recent riots in DC, what it means for Wall Street, and he even weighs in on the US presidential elections. Millions of Americans woke up today and you know, they still feel that there was a, a lack of integrity in, in the election process that occurred, uh, you know, in November. This has to be like the number one thing that this new administration has to respond to is that they, we, they need to restore confidence and integrity in the election process. That, that has to be, you know, every state obviously needs to go out and do what Florida did in 2020. Because it, it will spill into the markets at some point. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen! By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. And before we get to Jim Toes, we're going to start with the opening bell on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. This is also our first podcast created especially for our YouTube channel with our new audio-visual component. Go to Life on Planet Earth. And you can keep listening to us on all your other favorite podcast channels, Spotify, Apple, Google, Breaker, and more. 
My guest is Jim Toes, President and CEO of the Security Traders Association, a very important grassroots Wall Street trade organization with headquarters in New York and a vital presence in Washington, D.C. It has 24 affiliates across the United States, and it has members on America's trading desks and financial houses. Jim has over 30 years' experience on Wall Street, including 18 years as a managing director at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. We will catch up with Jim in a wee moment. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. I'm delighted to have you here, Jim. What's going on at the STA these days? Oh, listen, well, first of all, thanks for having us on. It's really great to reconnect in, in this way, John, and it's been a while, and it's, it's nice. It's good to see you. Uh, Happy New Year to you and, and all and all your listeners that, that are uh, joining us today. So, yeah, I mean, listen, it's, it's been a very active time for, for STA. We, you know, we, we kind of sit in the middle. You know, we have, on the one hand, we have all our financial services members, people who are in the financial services industry, you know, just uh, on one side. And then the other side, we, we do a lot of work in, in D.C., like he kind of talked about, right? So we, we kind of we kind of see ourselves in the middle of, of two worlds, you know, stuff that goes on in, in Washington with congressional members and regulators like the SEC, and then the business world, you know, as far as uh, at broker dealers, asset managers and exchanges. So, you know, our, our office remains in New York, but we do spend, uh, you know, a lot of time in, in D.C. Tell us about the history of the STA, its membership. How did you get into the business? So, like, like you talked about, we've been around for a long time, right? We were you know, we were formed at a very pivotal time in our in our nation's history. I mean, it was during the uh, the I think the, the FDR during the, the New Deal, right? And it was this is obviously we were at that time we were coming out of the depression. The Securities Act of 1934 was was being written by Congress. That act created the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, and we as an association, as an industry group. Uh, formed as a, as an entity to engage the SEC on it. So our history goes back to as far back as 1934 when our first meeting was held in in Chicago. Full disclosure, I've known you for many years from my days as editor at Traders Magazine, a venerable publication we all love and still read. And that was in the days when uh, Ken Heath. The wonderful and noble Ken Heath was publisher. We used to, of course, cover all the trade conferences. And back then, it was very much oriented Traders Magazine and the STA towards the stock trading side. And then options became a bigger part of it. And that's sort of your biggest constituency today. So tell us about what happens at the STA and the networking that goes on and the opportunities that you provide your very large membership and why somebody should be a member of the STA. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, most of, so listen, I think all associate, what is a trade association, right? A trade association kind of does two things. One, they educate their members and then two, they represent their members' interests with, uh, you know, various regulators and legislators. Those are kind of the two core functions where we're different than most associations is that our members are individuals, like you kind of touched upon. Most uh, associations that are out there, some of the very large ones, their, their clients are the firms. Their, their client is, is, you know, is a Morgan Stanley, is a Merrill Lynch, or is a, you know, uh, is, a, is at the firm level. 
we're, we're more at the individual level, uh, which means a lot of the content that we're putting out here is around career development. Uh, it's around uh, helping people with their careers uh, through educating them on, on industry trends. And also, like you talked about, like you touched on, providing networking opportunities where they can meet other people within the industry and then advance their career on it. Um, that's obviously has changed. That, that really means something different today than it did mean uh, back in, you know, 1990 and, and 2000, uh, when there were a lot of, uh, really the only way to kind of network was to do it in person physically. Um, that still occurs with us. We still do a significant amount of events every year. Our largest event down in DC, you know, that we have attracted 750 people uh, in 2019. Obviously, 2020, we had to take it onto a virtual basis. Uh, but going, you know, moving that, you know, that 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 physical location where network is occurring to a virtual to a virtual aspect, you know, it has pluses and minuses to it. We we've been able to reach a much wider audience this year when we had the conference. We had around 1,600 people, um, you know, register for the event. But but they obviously you know it wasn't the same deep quality of networking that 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 occurs when people are in a room together looking at at each other's faces shaking hands and having a conversation on it so you know the world has changed right the world the world has changed um, and and we've had to adapt just like all other firms have had to adapt on how they engage with their members how they go about it and the means and what they're putting out and, and how they're doing it. Of course, the world of trading itself has changed. Uh, you can remember when there were a lot more humans, human traders on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange on all the big NASDAQ trading desks. We moved from a semi-automated system to almost a, you know, a high-speed trading system on the floor. There's much less of a human trading presence on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and on, on all the trading rooms at Merrill Lynch, Goldman Sachs, and so on. That's been a phenomenal evolution. Yeah, it has. I mean, listen, I mean, technology has changed every industry in, in our world, in the world, right? Travel, journalism, medicine, everything has had a, an impact, um, uh, you know, through because of technology. Now, you know, I think the, the, the effects of technology, when we look at it, there have been enormous efficiencies along with an enormous amounts of disruption. So I think in the, in the financial services industry, I think where the efficiencies, where you can see them most obviously is just the ability for individual investors to connect to the marketplace, receive education, and then I have a platform to, to trade on it. So, I mean, just think about the, and I know we hear a lot about the Robinhood effect, but, but this didn't exist, you know, 20 years ago. The ability for someone in their living room to connect directly into the marketplace with, with the means of, you know, getting onto a platform, receiving the education so they have the confidence to trade, and then they have a very efficient way to engage into the marketplace directly. They're getting prices that are timely and accurate and their ability to just click a button and buy or sell an option or, or a stock or an ETF is, is inexpensive. Obviously, as you know, there's been, uh, you know, commission-free trading on, on some of these platforms now. So the technology that has come into our marketplace has enabled people to connect, be educated and trade very efficiently. On the negative side of that, obviously, you know, there has been an enormous amount of disruption uh, to your point. You know, there are, you know, what used to be done by many is being done by few. 
there has been an enormous amount of, of consolidation that that's, that has occurred in our marketplace. This has led to uh, you know to fewer and much larger players. This has led to um, you know things being done faster and more efficient by less people, and you know it has been very disruptive. Where we have seen people of a certain generation. Uh, just leave the industry altogether, which is fine. You know, they they move on. People, you know, people work in our industry. We always feel have been very resilient. We tend to be, you know, uh, fairly intelligent, um, very hard work ethics, and our and our ability to adjust and to make decisions to leave when the market is telling us that there is no longer a value for our services. We tend to leave and go into other areas, and and I think that has been a remarkable. Uh, you know, story for for the industry, or its ability for individuals to to take a skill set and then move elsewhere uh, in, into another industry. The SEC introduced a lot of these changes with consultation with industry professionals and studies and so on. So I'm thinking of Reg NMS, the move to decimal trading from a fractional system that was also historic. But it upended the market and the culture of trading, as you might have remembered it, and I certainly remember covering it. It was a very colourful period. We get sort of nostalgic, Jim, in our old age here, (laughs) even though we're young fellows. But you you have all those conference gatherings, which you still have. They're very successful. I seem to remember on (laughs) NASDAQ market making, there was a lot of colourful characters, and they were old school. I'm thinking of... Do you remember a gentleman called Lee Belleri, the late Lee Belleri? What a gentleman. I hope I can mention some names here because I, I think it's good to, to bring out history. Aldo Parsiseppi, quite a genius as far as market making went. And he was a staunch advocate of the traditional market making system. Now, I suppose some people would say, well, you know, vested interests. But I often listen carefully to Aldo. And his argument, in my mind, made perfect sense in terms of other kinds of efficiencies that we actually seem to have lost as we've tried to level the playing field for the little guy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there, there, there were a lot of colorful personalities, you know, back then. I, I, I think there's probably two things that kind of come to mind when, when, we, when you kind of touched on that. You know, um, you know first off, a lot of the, the, uh, the concepts uh, are still exist today they just exist on an electronic platform um, you know people want to get as close to the execution as possible you know people some of these broad concepts that you know around um, you talk about high frequency trading the, the, the things that they that they you know are doing are doing it they're just doing it on an electronic platform that is a lot faster uh, than what the human being used to do but the concepts were, were still the same on it the part that I do think that that I do think that the commission does need to look at it, and they and they do, you know, they have touched on this, and I know that Chairman Clayton uh, really uh, has tried to, um, you know, drive conversation around this. Is that, you know, we have this one size fits all type market structure, you know, and and the market structure that we have today fits well for large companies that have large floats that that trade electronically and have a lot of interest in it. But the value of the market maker uh, who's committing capital, it's it still exists today in those companies. It just looks differently. You know, it's an electronic market making through the Citadels and the Virtues, and they are providing, a, you know, enormous, uh, you know, service and and always being being willing to stand and make a two sided market on it. 
but there was there was a, a capital commitment that 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 firms upstairs at the at Bank America and Morgan Stanley, a lot of those people you just talked about, their willingness to commit capital upstairs, um, that that's kind of gone away for the smaller and mid-sized companies. And 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 that's one area that I think we get frustrated. It's like, yes, we understand that that markets evolve and we never want to go back. We don't we don't want to go, we never want to go back to a market structure that we had in 1990 or 19 or 2005. But there were attributes of, of that market structure that were that served small to mid-sized companies extremely well that have not been replicated in this new world that we are in today. And, and we do find that to be frustrating. And, and, and really where, where the, the, uh, the, the shortcomings that we feel is that the, the incentives to, to commit capital you know, in these small to mid-sized companies has not been replicated that used to exist back when Aldo and Fuzzy Gadul, another legend, right? I mean, he's still in the business, by the way. I mean, Herzog, Heine, and Gadul, he's still in the business, but, you know, the day that, you know, when they were around. They, uh, not only did they bring color and vitality to the industry and humanized it, but they also had a depth of knowledge that they could share with their clients, and I'm not sure if that can be properly replicated in an algorithmic-driven environment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, you know, we're, we're still very much an apprentice industry, right? I mean, how did, how did I get trained? How did most people get trained? You know, they, they put us in a seat and they sat, next, sat us next to someone who was more experienced and, uh, and we learned. And then we passed that knowledge on. And, and we passed the knowledge on to, to clients who were doing the same thing. And, and that now has um, been replaced by machines. I mean, the amount of person-to-person contact within firms and from firm to firm has, has changed dramatically. And, and, you know, we still believe that, listen, it, technology is great. And, and it's wonderful that we can send a newsletter to 35,000 people. That's, that's great. But there, but don't kid yourself. There is more information and more value in a conversation than there is in an email. There is more information and more value in a in a conversation, person to person, than there is on uh, over a phone. Um, you know, so uh, we can't we can't we can never forget that. Yeah. So there are nuances in conversations that may be missing in a a pro forma a newsletter or a memo. Or, but uh, that sort of brings up a good point to technology. We're, we should all be pro-technology once it's applied. We, we're not Luddites or we don't want to regress. But there were some very brilliant people in trading just a generation ago. Many of them are still on trading floor. And they had a diverse and interesting backgrounds. Some of them had uh, advanced college degrees Others uh, maybe finished high school. Some maybe never went to high school, but they got in by sheer ability and so on. What does it take to become a trader today, Jim? Do you need to have a PhD in rocket science? <laughs> it doesn't hurt. It doesn't <laughs> hurt. <laughs> I mean, yeah, listen, I'll tell you what. My, my story of getting into it um, is probably never, does not happen today. Yeah, I want to hear this story because so, I, I know yeah. it, but it's brilliant. Yeah, so listen. I mean, I'm I'm the I'm the youngest of seven. My father was a New York City police police captain. Uh, I graduated Fordham University in 1985. Um, I took my degree in, in economics and I went down to Pier 17, where I uh, took a bartending job as I was waiting to be called for the police department, waiting for my number to be called. Um, I, my number was eventually called, but it was called for the transit department. So I didn't really want to ride subways for the rest of my life. Um, 
And looking Pier 17, as you know, John, back then was like, that was the place where all the Wall Street folks hung out. So I just started handing my resume out from behind the bar. And eventually I found someone to uh, take a shot on, on me. Um, so I worked at Oppenheimer for seven years trading over-the-counter securities. They were NASDAQ securities back then. Uh, from there, I went to Merrill Lynch, where I worked for 18 years. And uh, now I've been at STA now for 10. So I, I consider myself fortunate that I guess it makes me around 105. Um, <laughs> but, but I, you know, I just consider myself really fortunate to have walked through the doors of Merrill Lynch when I did during that time period. It was a wonderful firm. Um, I, I miss it. But I also realized that that that, does, that doesn't exist any, anymore. Um, and, you know, it's been it's just great that I think very fortunate that I've only worked in three places in, in around a 35 year career on, on Wall Street. But that's where I got to start. I, I don't know how, you know, today, what's the skill set? I mean, it is. I'll say two things about it. One is, you know, obviously you have to have this math background. You know, you do joke around it being, uh, you know, a rocket scientist. But, you know, th that that is that, you know, Wall Street is still able to attract the brightest minds. You know, um, you know, it's a well-resourced industry. They can pay a lot of money. People want to, you know, so they have the ability to attract the brightest minds that, that we do that we do have out there. Um, if someone's getting into an industry today, I would just say, listen, you have to understand that you have to find another interest as far as you just don't go into Wall Street and work on Wall Street. You have to kind of bring another interest in with you. So, you know, if you're if you have an interest on energy, uh, I think what's, what we're seeing now on Wall Street, which with the different trend here, is that if I was the energy trader at Merrill Lynch, the only job that I really would have had would have been the energy trader over at Citigroup or over at Morgan Stanley. What we're seeing now, I think, is this: people are if my if my expertise is in energy, I am working. Uh, at, you know, at an investment bank, I'm either trading it or I'm a, I'm a research analyst or I'm a salesman in the space. But my next job, though, could be at an asset manager. It could be at a private equity firm. It could be even at Exxon. And so we're seeing that that type of movement in, in the job market where I'm not, it's not a typical Wall Street person. It is somebody who has another skill set, another interest that is kind of either moving through Wall Street into their corporate side uh, of the industry or into the asset management side, they're, they're kind of moving around in a different direction than we've seen in the past. Jim, was it in the Blarney Stone that you worked before you got your job? You see, I'm, I'm raising this up to you and to your legacy, the NYPD. It was, it was Bergen's. Okay. Yeah, right oh, down, right down, right down, right down. We're right next to McMinimums, right above. Food. Oh, I know that. I think McMinimums are still there. And I got to say, okay. I mean, listen, that, that place rocked back then. Yeah. I don't know, the South Street Seaport. I remember it used to be so crowded there, John. I, first off, I, I did continue to bartend the first, uh, I was working on Wall Street probably for, uh, I think, two years. And I was still bartending there because the pay back then <laughs> on Wall Street for an entry level person wasn't that good. I'd be people like, you know, Oh, you're still bartending for extra cash in your pocket? Like, no, I'm bartending to pay for my rent because I'm only getting paid <laughs> such a small amount here. Right, right. right but the, right. the crowds used to be so big. I, I would have to literally, there was this large area of cobblestones that people, this open space cobblestone area that was, you know, like an avenue block in, in length. And I would have to walk a block out of the way because you could not get through the crowd. It was, it was such a popular place back then. Of course, That's now in the world of COVID, it, you know, I don't know, you have to, I don't know, I don't, probably doesn't happen anymore. That's a whole story. A great friend of mine, Hugh Olani of Olani's 
Pine Square Bar and Pub. I don't know if you've ever visited. It's gone. Hugh had to hand in his lease. He was paying 90000 a month in the middle of COVID. And he said, this is not going to work. So they've basically told the restaurateurs and small businesses, you have to do takeout. And it's been a total miserable disaster. But that's getting a little political. I'm wondering how traders are coping during COVID. Do most of them work remotely or is there social distancing on the floors New York Stock Exchange? I guess to go around with their masks. So let's just go back in time a little bit, you know, back to March when the COVID was really starting to pick up momentum. I think the the strategy that firms were taking at that time were, all right, let's try to get a third of our employees um, to our disaster recovery site because every firm has a disaster recovery site. Let's get a third of them home and let's keep a third in the office. And that should be enough to get us through, uh, you know, this pandemic. Uh, that quickly turned to, we got to get everybody home, right? So, and of course, this huge migration of every workroom home, you know, these things never happen like in August when markets are slow, right? This happened when during extreme volatility, at the peak of volatility and disruption that was going on in the marketplace. The fact that our markets opened at 9.30 and closed at 4 o'clock and people were able to get trades done is an unbelievable testament for all the investing and, and uh, that firms have done in technology to run their systems. It is also uh, a testament to the work that our regulators have done as far as regulation around Reg SCI, which is you know, making sure that things do work. Um, it is really, a, I mean, it's just incredible that, 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 that you know, that, that what happened when it happened and that we did not have any major outages during, during that time period. So, so to answer your question, yes, people are working from home. They are working from home. They are trying to, people are, some people are going back into work, but, but I think the work from home uh, environment is every firm is going to have to offer that to employees. I think that is that is definitely here to stay. But I don't think I think as we kind of go into this, like um, what will now be a, a full year of it, I think people are starting to kind of get these. Uh, I want to get back in the office. I want to I want to get back in. There's there's um, you know that camaraderie, being around people, the human element, you know, be strategic is really important that people are in the same space, kind of you know in each other's presence doing it. I asked what kind of family she wanted. She said, a family like yours. Learn more about adopting a teen at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. My guest is Jim Tolles, President and CEO of the Security Traders Association. And I can't stress enough, it's a very important trade organization on Wall Street and in America during these difficult and strange times of COVID-19 and economic uncertainty. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Humans are social um, animals and socializing is a good thing. And studies will show that productivity ultimately drops off where there's not a lot of interaction. So you just can't do everything remote. So yeah, That's, you're right. I mean, I, there's just one more point. So, you know, you're right. Like, listen, here's the deal. When, when everybody was home, then the everyone was had an equal seat at the table, right? Because everyone was remote. But now we're kind of in this period where, okay, if you have a meeting in 
in your office in New York City, and now there are maybe five or 10 people in the room, and you have 25 who are remote, that, that's a different dynamic. And, and I think firms are really trying to find a way to, to address that. Like, how do we, you know, that we can't have those people who are calling in remotely feel like they're being marginalized, that they feel like they're, that they're not being heard or that we're, or we're not getting their input because they feel like they are disconnected. So we're kind of in a weird period right now where firms are really trying to deal with this hybrid. We have some at home and we got some in the office. So there has to be some kind of consistency. We're also have had a phenomenal run on the stock market. I mean, we've hit a new record. I don't know if anybody would have seen that coming, but I'm going to assume you will attribute some of that or a lot of it to the stimulus coming from the Fed, or is there something else going on here, Jim? First off, yeah, I, I am shocked at um, where uh, the market is, all right? You are correct, like in the beginning, there was an enormous amount of stimulus that was put into this, into, uh, into the markets during the early days of the pandemic. I also think that, that just with, when you think about the events, that the, these events have played well for the larger companies, you know, the ones that have the technology and did not um, have to be shut down dur- during this. So I think that some of these larger companies um, have benefited, you know, at the, at the, uh, de- at the detriment to, to small, to small mom and pop companies. Yeah. And, and, at some po- and at some point, that's going to come to roost uh, on this. Um, and the other part, too, is like, listen, some of these companies, like, you know, the ones that are kind of driving these are the ones that are, uh, you know, very, they, they kind of, you know, they had the technology and the ones that are coming to the marketplace. And, and this just kind of took like what they thought was going to be a two or three year growth period. And because everyone had to go work from home, it just kind of shortened the work period down to a couple of months for them to kind of grow this big. So, but, but bottom line, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I am surprised that, that like, like most that the market just keeps going up. I get nervous about it. Uh, you know, we, we've seen enough of this where people kind of get a little uh, complacent and uh, they just think it's going to go up every day. And, and at, at some point, you know, listen, President Biden's going to be everyone, every president, every new administration gets a test. Right. And, and, and we're and, going to see it. That- and he will get a test. He will get a test and we'll see what happens. The whole pandemic economy has been nothing like we've seen in history. You can't compare it to the Great Depression. Nothing. I mean, the whole market interventions and the money's shoring up the economy, winners, losers. Now, we're all free enterprise people. Our show is a free enterprise, uh, pro-business. But you make a good point. Some of the very big business have done exceedingly well. And God bless them. And some of the billionaires have done well. God bless them. But a lot of small businesses have hurt and gone. Mom and pops, three, four, 10 people, 100 people, they're gone. It's a very strange, uneven recovery. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, this isn't, yeah. I mean, I, I just, I would just say yes to it. That's it. I'll, I'll say that yes. I mean, I, I, I don't, I think there's some, in some ways, I don't like to use that term as a zero-sum game, but in some ways, some of these co- companies that have benefited, they have benefited in areas where it is a zero-sum game. Yeah. Okay? I mean, I'm only buying, there's only a certain amount of gallons of milk that get purchased every every month by by our nation. And and if and if all of a sudden one company was, uh, you know, was delivering 10% and now delivering 20%, someone, someone that 10% wasn't new demand for milk all of a sudden. That, that was taken from somebody else. So uh, where do you see this ending, uh, the uh, pandemic economy? Is it going to end well? 
or do you have any fear that we could have a major bust if the Fed withdraws stimulus? That's one of the theories out there. You know, where does this kind of lead us to? I mean, I think, listen, we, there are there are still political uncertainties that that exist, and 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 I know that this we're we're, we're taping this, you know, less than. 24 hours after the after the mob um, oh, did what gosh. they did down in D.C., which was uh, such Terrible. a sad day. But I, I do, you know, that was a very sad day, and we can talk about it more if you like. But but I, but but bottom line is that that even today, millions of Americans woke up today, and you know they still feel that there was a a lack of integrity in in the election process that occurred, uh, you know, in November. Mm-hmm. And and this has to be like the number one thing that this new administration has to has to respond to is that they we they need to restore confidence and integrity in the election process. That that has to be, you know, every state obviously needs to go out and do what Florida did in 2020. So I, I do think that the that the that the biggest question, because um, it because it will spill into the markets at some point, is you know, how our leaders respond. I mean, the people who are now in power. Um, how are they going to respond to this, you know, the 45 million people? I don't know if 45 million people would vote for Trump today after what happened yesterday, but but there are still millions of people who, who, who on both sides, Democrats and Republicans, who've, who um, just have lost confidence in the integrity of, of the of the election process. And that's such a, you know, the power of the vote. I mean, our, our democracy is built on that, and, and we, we, we need to restore that. So you would favor some kind of an independent commission? to look at the whole process and bring in lots of experts, do a lot of studies. It's so complicated. It's interesting to listen to Eric Trump and Donald Trump and people who have been critical of the most recent election statistically. I mean, they make a pretty good point that it's hard to understand how Biden, not taking a side here, won the election. I, listen, I just listen. This is really done at the. You know, we don't want Congress obviously picking our president. We, I do hope that I think there is concerns that maybe leaders at the national level. How are they going to respond to the events of yesterday? Are they going to use it as an opportunity to take away more civil liberties, or are they going to use it? Are they going to see it as as something of as an aha type moment where they need to you know play a leadership role on bringing in uh, you know. In, integrity to the election process at the state level. Right? We obviously, you know, th- this is a very much of a state issue, how elections are run. It doesn't mean that the that the federal government doesn't have any type of some type of a role in in, you know, providing information or offering guidance or, you know, they do have some a limited role intentionally on on how elections are done, but they do need to play a leadership role on making sure that we never never have this happen again. Because the integrity of the vote it spills over into the economy and it's something that Wall Street watches as something that you as leader of the STA would take close interest in and all your members would. And I guess at the end of the day, we need unity and we certainly need peace. We don't need violence. Um, there's no room for violence and people smashing windows on any side. I know you, your group lobbies in Washington. You have very close relationships with lawmakers there. Everybody was okay, I presume, yesterday. Yeah, it, you know, it, I'm glad you brought that up. By the way, because that, that yesterday, as we watched, you know, those images on TV. I mean, I don't know. First off, if if, if any of your listeners ever go to Washington D.C., I always tell people when you go to D.C., you know, don't go to the museums. <laughs> go walk. You're you're able to walk in to the buildings where congressional members and senators meet. You're able to just walk in. This isn't like it is. 
when you think about how hard it is to get get into an office building in New York City where you have to have an appointment and then you don't get past that guard in the lobby unless your name's on the list and you, and you show an ID, right? We have the ability as U.S. citizens to walk in and out of these buildings on a regular basis, right? I mean, you, you know, you go through a metal detector, right? I, I would really recommend people that they go in there. Those halls, when you walk the halls of these, these you know, house office buildings, it is, it is like walking, it is, it's, it's, it's like, it is a lot like a temple or a church. And, and, and it's a very, it's like sacred. And to see those people walking the halls the way that they did yesterday was a very, like, it just really hit like a nerve, like you felt violated, mm-hmm. you know, and, and desecrated the, the, the insides of like our government. And it was a very personal I know I speak on behalf of, we, we, listen, we bring our members down to D.C. on a regular basis, and I know that they feel the same way, that they, when you bring someone into, into one of these buildings, they get awe-inspired when they walk in, and when you sit them down with their congressional member, and they have the ability to talk to their, to their representative, when they leave, they are just so inspired, and, and, and they feel good about, about having, having made the trip, and and that to me was just the saddest part to see something that you hold as sacred to be, uh, you know, treated in such a way that it was treated yesterday it was very upsetting. Yeah, well, I hope we never see anything like it again. It makes you wonder because your dad was in law enforcement. Yeah. I'm wondering what he would have said oh. if they had looked at the security around the Capitol. To me, it was wanting. Where were the barriers? As somebody said, why was there no snipers up on the roof? Why could the mob not be? controlled i you know something so that 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 has to be found out as well i mean you, you know listen i i heard the the, the commissioner speak there uh you know the dc you know they were caught off guard i mean all right i'll give you some benefit of a doubt on that because obviously trump has held a lot of rallies over the past four years 25 30,000 people is not uh you know large and they, and, they, and and factually they have never been violent right we have not seen violent trump so there, you know, maybe there's no historical perspective on uh, here. At the end of the day, though, that police department has 1,800 cops in in the metro. I don't, I didn't see 1,800 cops around that building. No, no. All right. Then on top of that, they have the ability to, you know, then you have the, you know, this. There are different, you know, you have the, you know, um, you know, the police, the, the police that guard the inside the buildings. But then that metro police, 1,800. I didn't see that many around there. And and you're right, man. I don't, you know, I don't understand how. They appeared on some of the videos that we've seen, their ability to get into that building completely unfettered. I don't understand it. Well, we got to pray for peace in this country. Um, It's an estranged moment in history. So was Trump good for the market? He clearly was. I mean, he's leaving office with the Dow record high. What did Joe Biden bring us? Well, we'll have to see, right? (laughs) Listen, at the time when Trump came in, we were we were we were coming out of the you know the one thing that that Washington and a lot and a lot of industries, not just Washington, you know, we we don't you know we call it a you know we don't do dimmer switches well. We it's either something is either on or it's off, you know, or or, or maybe it's the pendulum if you want to use that as the analogy, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think about you know the financial crisis of '08 and then the years of you know Dodd Frank and more regulation and regulation upon regulation and and you know there were times we were going down to D.C. and we were uh, they were they were taking parking lots and putting in these like you know mobile structures because as the government it was get, growing so big they were going outside the office space that was available down there, right? So he comes in and yes he he, he you know does away with the the regulation on it and that obviously the market responded well to that. 
we like certainty. I'll tell you one thing. That, that's one thing that the market likes. They, they like certainty. And, and hopefully Biden can bring that. You, you, can, you can have regulation, just, but you just can't get into a period where it's like, if, you're, if the market feels that it's just endless and it's just going to keep going and going like we were getting, markets don't respond well to that. We like certainty. We like to kind of know that we're going to make a decision today based on a certain set of facts and that those facts are not going to change a year or two from now. So hopefully you can bring that. For your members speaking to yeah. them directly, what's the hottest item on your agenda? We're concerned around a financial transaction tax. I know this is probably, we, we always talk about this, um, but we do see, uh, you know, obviously there are a lot of states and, and the government, you know, that are dealing with tremendous deficits as, as attributed to COVID. And they're going to look to find a new revenue stream for, to fill that, you know, to offset those, those, um, those debts, those, you know, that they have shortfalls in their budgets. And we are concerned that they will put in uh, a new type of financial transaction tax. And that would, that would be very unfortunate for our industry and investors. And the political winds would seem to be shifting in that direction, especially after what happened in Georgia yesterday with the uh, outcome of that election. So you're going to watch that would seem that there would be a tendency among state regulators and certain politicians to tax Wall Street more heavily. Yes, yes. And 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 to do it in such a way that they what they, you know, what they don't realize, no matter how many times we kind of explain it to them, is that this tax ends up being paid by the investor. I'm going to wrap up here with a few quick ones, Jim. Is this a good time for somebody to have a career on Wall Street? Would you advise them to go in any particular direction? Oh, I, 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 oh yeah. I mean, so I, you know, 35 years in the industry, I, I love this industry. I mean, it is, um, it is, it's one of the few industries, John, where, as you know, where, um, where something, you could go to work and something happens in the world and, and you feel it like it, 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 at your job, it impacts something at, at your job. And I think that there is, there is an enormous, and you know, connectivity between working at, on, a, on a Wall Street uh, you know, firm and the world in general around, you know, you just, you're more in touch with events that, that happen on it. So I'm, I'm always encouraging people to enter the industry. I just want them to enter it, though, with, you know, with uh, you know, eyes a little bit wide open. That you need to kind of come in here and realize that a couple of things. One is that you know it's it's a great industry, but it's 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 uh, very uncertain at times and disruptive. And and you know, you want to make sure you're saving all your bonus checks in the beginning, and because you know, odds are you're going to be facing you know being let go at at some point in your career, and you're going to have to find another job. Yeah, our, 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 we might be looking for jobs at McManamans again, which would be okay. Yeah. You know, you, the tips are good there. I wouldn't. I would love to go back. I'll tell you, I, that would not be. I would love to end my career the way I started it. Yeah, well, we could talk about that. Uh, life in a pub is theatre, really, if you think about it. You can have a lot. In Ireland, Jim, you visited Ireland because that's your heritage. They have a lot of crack in these pubs. I don't mean crack as in no, I know, bad I know. stuff. I mean, listen, I, my, my oldest daughter married a, a boy from Waterford. Oh, know? my God. Okay. So, well, listen. So, here, so, you go. here you go. So there we go. So, uh, <laughs> so Jim, the, I, the other thing, as some of our listeners are going to be asking, they're listening to Jim Toes, President and CEO of the Security Traders Association. Is everybody on Wall Street a multimillionaire? No. 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 That is another thing that is such a... You know, there's a lot of hardworking people on Wall Street that wake up in the morning and, and you know, middle of back office and, uh, you know, no, no one, there's, we're not all, um, I don't want to start mentioning names and stuff here, but, you know, they're not. 
Yeah, in other words, there are people who lose their job and many have gone through hard times. So it's yes. not sunshine and roses for everyone. No, I mean, listen, I got, I got let go from Merrill Lynch twice in my career. How crazy is that? And, you know, I, I live in a neighborhood that has a lot of doctors and lawyers and, and they don't, they don't, the accounts, they don't understand that part. Like how we, you know, there's another thing you got to have to just have the stomach for it. But no, no, everyone on Wall Street is not Jamie Diamond. And Jamie does a good job. He does um, a very good job. Yeah. Yeah. No, it seems like I, I've never personally met him, but he's got a, you know, publicly, he's a nice demeanor, great analytical mind, very hard worker. And he had a bout of health issues and he's, he's at the helm. Yeah. Right? It's reassuring when you see a strong person like yeah. that to the forefront. Jim, if somebody wants to join the STA, how can they do it? Go on your website, reach out oh, to your so, office. Yeah, we're, we're out there, securitytraders.org. Thank, the good thing about having a last name like Toes is that I'm pretty easy to find on social media. So, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Jim, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Jim. Have a happy new year. We've, we'll talk again. John, and I hope next time we talk, we're, we're talking over a pint in person. All right. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.